co-host because I'm such a ding dong. I did not pay attention to Shelly's schedule. <laughs> so she is off gallivanting around the world and I had to run a sub in and thankfully I have the most amazing sub ever. Let me introduce you. This is Dr. Dave Fulmer. Hey Pam. What's going on? So ever all of you know, Dave, oh my gosh, I love Dave. He is awesome. We first met through Pickleball, yep. which is where I meet most of the people I know these days. <laughs> and then it just happened that we are both musicians. Dave is a professor at Snow College in music. And then I had him come play a gig with my band because you also play trumpet. Yeah, that was fun. And you sing, and you're super fun. Singing and a then, dance, trip threat, something like that. Yes, and then Dave invited me to be the guest artist with the American Fork Symphony when you were guest conducting. Yes. And that was amazing yeah those are good times so much fun it was a great show we brought yeah. Will smith in another guest artist and yes former teacher of yours from college and yeah that was a great memory great night and you know oh, the house down so much fun and how surreal is this that i get to be doing this with you today because i'm one of your thousands of loyal podcast audience members and now <laughs> i'm like sitting in Shelly's chair, and I'm not feeling worthy, but I'm thinking I'm glad you messed up the schedule, or else I wouldn't be here with you today. <laughs> My game. Awesome. Yeah, it's I always have fun with Dave, so <laughs> Dave always makes me laugh, so I thought this would be a cool thing to invite you in. It's I always love when I can cross my music world, pickleball world into absolutely podcasting or anywhere else. So I, I also happen to be a legal expert and others. Yeah. <laughs> so this will go very well. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yes. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> Nothing. When we left off, the last episodes I did were about the comments and still I'm waiting to hear from Karen SP and taco Tuesday. Call me. <laughs> they have They didn't jump right on <laughs> the phone for you. No, they really didn't. Not yet. So we shall see how that plays out. I am Taco Tuesday. (laughs) Just thought you ought to know. No, you are way too kind and too (laughs) nice and fun to be Taco Tuesday. that didn't last. So I know you're lying. It's worth a try. So, like I've said in the past, we're going chronologically. And from where we were, the next thing is Jeremy was sentenced. We already did sentencing before the comments. He got a sense, sentence to 11 years in prison, and so they took him off to prison. Still makes me mad. Oh, man, it makes me furious. It made me so mad I did a whole podcast. Like, <laughs> not these this series. I mean, I created a podcast for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think you're... That's pretty bad. I think you're setting a record with multiple episodes, but it's like, it just... It's, I hate it when Shelly's right, but she's right. It just gets more weird, more bizarre... You're just making yeah. us all angry, Pamela, so congratulations. I think that's what you <laughs> yeah. wanted to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess I kind of did because, you know, misery loves company. Why should I be here by exactly. myself? We were all doing just fine until the podcast, and now we're right there with you. Yes, I know it. Okay, so I know today we're going to be talking about Jeremy's prison experiences, which are crazy, sad, wild, kind of funny at times even, and inspiring. This is maybe one of my very favorite episodes, because here's why. I know that the trials that we face in this life, of course, yes, are hard for all of us, whether it's a trial in court or just in life, but they are nothing compared to what we can become. And I'm really sorry to get preachy on people if you don't like it. I apologize right now, but I just want everyone to know 
that you're worth more than you or I could ever imagine. And our divine worth and potential are worth more than this world can ever give. And I think that Jeremy gets side of that by the end of this, and I hope it helps you. It certainly helped me. I know it's kind of a long journey to get there through the episode, but hang on. It is really a beautiful lesson at the end. So he gets sentenced to 11 years in prison. And when they first take him, they take him from Salt Lake down to Pahrump, Nevada. That's kind of the Grand Central Station of federal <laughs> prison. Everyone starts there, and then they figure out where they're sending them after that. And he's there for about a month. So you have everyone that's coming in the federal system. He said it was really similar to jail. So he couldn't do any video calls, any visits. He had no contact with family. I think maybe he could make a phone call, but not to me. So so for me, I, he just like disappeared immediately for a time until he got to Taft Prison in California. Taft is a federal prison. And then I was able to connect with him a bit. And Taft was actually not a bad prison. As prisons go. <laughs> As prisons go, people think federal prison. You, you guys, that's why I want to do this episode so that everyone learns what this is really like. Taft was one of the best ones that he served some time in. And while he was at Taft, Kate, remember John Swallow, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the former attorney general in Utah that was part of the whole scandal thing. John Swallow, he was getting ready for trial. And remember, I have said that I was not very impressed with attorney number six. Yes, right? you did mention that. She is the attorney that is going to be handling the FTC case. She was telling Jeremy, we've got to just settle the case, even though for at least two years prior to that, she was saying, oh, we're going to fight the FTC. No one ever fights. So we're going to fight. That's why we win, because no one ever does it. And so they're not used to going to trial. And then to me, it felt like the minute that it was time for her to actually step up and do the fight, all of a sudden she's like, oh, we just need to settle. Right. So I was not very happy with her, but she was also handling the appeal because as soon as the sentence came down, remember in sentencing, I explained they included acquitted conduct, everything he was acquitted of, no bank fraud, no money laundering, wire fraud. And they included that as to enhance the charge which almost never happens, but when they're desperate, they do desperate things. Yeah, that was another level of my anger. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so attorney number six was handling the appeal. And one of the things that really bugged me about that was not that she was handling it, but as part of her handling it, she immediately explained to Jeremy and his family, oh, this is going to take us a year just to get up to speed to read through the trial transcript. I'm like, what? I can save you a whole yeah. lot of time. Let me just point it out. You know how I like all you listeners could probably go through the things that I point. I, I gave the highlights to you guys. I could have done that same version to, that I did with all of you listeners. I could have done that with the attorneys, but right. they didn't want to talk to me or anyone on our team. They had their staff reading through the transcript to find their own things. Oh, good heaven. But I, thank you. That's what I'm like. What What the crap? Like, are, you have all of us that lived through it. Use us as a resource. Doesn't it just seems yeah, like that would right be there. the right thing? Exactly. You lived it and you've been through it every step of the way. And it just, there didn't seem to be an abundance of common sense from this 
legal team. <laughs> well, I think we've got a shortage of common sense in this whole thing. So while Jeremy's at Taft, who do you think the attorneys are that go visit him? I would think and hope and pray that it was his lawyers in prep of his appeal to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. One would think. Nope, they never went and saw him. I don't think they even ever called him in prison. Do you know who did? John Swallow's attorneys. Uh, of course. Do I think that was smart of them? Nope. I think it was freaking brilliant of them. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I'm just saying this number six attorney seems to be all talk and no action in the right direction. Yes, yes. And uh, being taken advantage of right and left. Uh, one of my favorite country artists has that song, Little Less Talk and a Lot More yeah. Action. That's what we needed. She could have been listening to that, maybe. Yeah, I, <laughs> I should have sent it Absolutely. to her, but I don't think she was accepting my emails. So, anyway, so Jeremy's at Taft. The other people that came to see Jeremy were two of the agents, the FBI agents that had been investigating the Swallow fiasco, that the Attorney General whole investigation. And one of them was the guy right. that I referred to as Barney Five, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that guy, uh It's quite a cast of characters you've got in this story. It just kind of it, all it really together. is. So great one big surreal tale. Yes. So the lawyers for the former attorney general Swallow, his lawyers were actually they're very charming attorneys. You pay somebody enough, they'll be charming. Yep. <laughs> no, that's not necessarily true. It, you would think, because number six was getting over a million dollars. Oh, good heavens. And I will explain how that happened later, because it makes me uh, really super mad, so I'm going to dedicate more time yeah. to it. Just when I didn't think you could make me any more mad, well, there you go again. <laughs> I'm going to make your head absolutely spin when you hear how the government handles this stuff. Like, you won't believe it. That's what this... you do best, Pamela, is make my head spin. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, if you're going to give somebody a million dollars, though, you'd expect maybe they'd do something. Uh, the or a juror, lot of something. The attorney number six. Yeah, a lot of something. But it, the number six reminds me of uh, something Grandpa used to say. You don't do much, but you talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now you're gone from preaching to meddling. Now it sounds like you're talking to me, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So we will get more into number six and more into the government money and what happened to that and is happening. It is absolutely fascinating. You you won't believe it. I can't wait. And I'm speaking for all your listeners since I am one and just here as a spokesperson today for all your loyal listeners. I can't wait to hear that story so you can suck the joy and sunshine out of my life again, yet again. (laughs) Once again. Yes. So, but we have fun while we do it. So that kind of makes up oh, for something. Yes. Yes. So these two federal agents and the one guy, Barney Fife, wasn't a real FBI agent. He just played one on TV. Like, yeah. <laughs> he actually worked like for the state, but they said, quote, like he was on loan, quote, like to the FBI because they needed him, whatever. It, uh, that sounds like something that would happen in this case, yes. So it not does. Even shocked. Yes. Not even shocked. They get out there. Now, I told you that Swallow's attorneys had been there already. 
at least once, right. maybe twice, to visit with Jeremy. And because those guys are actually really cool guys, they're it, it's a it was a man and a woman team, and they are very good lawyers. They fight like crazy for their clients, and so of course mm-hmm. they're like putting effort into defending Swallow. So they go meet with Jeremy to try to find out, like Jeremy, what are you going to be testifying of? Because you can imagine that when John Swallow goes to trial, they want him to testify. Not just a little, like they want him to testify like so bad their teeth hurt. Right. So, and Swallow's lawyers know that in anticipation of that, they go to California and meet with him. And I'm sure they were charming and fun and it worked. Jeremy's a really easy guy to talk to and Mm -hmm. really nice to people. And then when the federal agents get there, one federal agent, one that plays one on TV or in this episode, <laughs> Barney <laughs> Five, those guys were kind of being jerks to him. And they were just trying to say, hey, you know, we're getting ready for this trial. Jeremy, you're going to testify, right? And, and Jeremy, he talked to them, but he didn't just roll over and give them what they want. Because here's why. Sure. Those guys had been complete jerks to him in the past. Let me tell you about Barney Five. There was a guy that at one point had been a very good friend of Jeremy's prior to all of this stuff happening. And then he got on some drugs, had some issues, and kind of lost his mind. His wife left him with the kids, and she called Jeremy, and he had some money still at that time. And when she called Jeremy, she's like, hey, I'm scared of him. I need to get away, and I don't have money. Jeremy gave her some money for rent. I, this is my understanding, that he helped her out with rent. Okay. And this guy, when I say he went crazy, I, I mean, he really kind of lost touch with reality. He decided that, which is kind of funny to me, because it seems like whenever someone loses touch with reality or they do like a past life regression or something, they're, they're never just like some poor guy that's a homeless person on the street. They're always like the emperor of Rome or something like that in their past life. To this guy, he believed he was Jesus, none other than Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. I and, see. Well, that makes it very important. Yeah, very, very important. And mind you, he was using some drugs to enhance this thought, right? Mm. You would need a lot of drugs. <laughs> I think so. Because Jeremy had helped this guy's ex-wife to have a, yeah. a home and food for her kids he decided that Jeremy was evil and he needed to destroy him. Well, that thought became more and more scary. And at one point, like, we'll go into some more of that on another episode, but at one point, like, he let Jeremy's wife know, hey, I know you're at gymnastics because I know you take your daughter to gymnastics at this time Uh on this date. I was actually in a meeting at a law office when I got word that Mm -hmm. Jason Jesus' dad, I I always called him Jason Jesus (laughs) because I did, uh, that his dad had actually called to warn Jeremy that he was very concerned because he had heard him talking about how Jeremy needed to be killed because he was evil and he needed to take him out. And Jeremy said, you need to talk to Pamela, my investigator, the investigator on this case, because I need to make sure my family's safe. And so I spoke with him. can't imagine Right. Yeah, everything he's dealing with, now he's got this on top of it as well. Oh, exactly. And so I spoke with him. I don't want to tell everyone what my conversation was with Jesus' dad. Not God, but but he had a different name. 
the other name, one. Because yeah. this was the fake Jesus. You don't know that for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And, well, just and, be careful. And fake Jesus' dad had seen him with a gun and talking about it. So now the, the threat is not just to talk. Now it's getting very, very real. And I was in a meeting at a law firm downtown Salt Lake. And I'm like, hey, I got to step out of this meeting because I'm getting texts about this stuff. So I step out. I immediately call Barney Fife and say, hey, you guys need to put the feds. You need to protect this guy. And he's like, oh, well, I have a lot to do. And I'm like, look, oh my their God. lives are in danger. You need to do something now. I said, look, I get it. If you don't like him, that's fine. But this is your number one witness against John Swallow. So if you want to protect your case, you will do this. That's sick that you have to play that card to get their attention. I mean, Jeremy's completely vulnerable. His family's vulnerable. Exactly. I should have said, Barney, you need to put like a real bullet in your gun and get down there. But <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds kind of extreme to me, but... Uh, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so... Oh, my gosh. So I hadn't heard from him. A couple hours passed, and now it's getting close to five. I'm scared. So I called Jeremy and said, hey, get out of your house and go to my house because I have a place in St. George. I said, go there because right. fake Jesus doesn't know me or where I live. So go hide out there right. for a couple of days. And so that's what they did. And when I got a hold of Barney Fife again, I was like, I was so angry. I was absolutely livid. I was seriously like, what in the hell have you been doing? Do you get it? Their lives are in danger. And he's like, yeah, I know, but I was really busy. I said, you haven't even done anything. What have you done? He's like, well, I had some stuff that I need to get entered into evidence on the swallow case. What? Seriously, he did nothing. So I don't have a lot of respect for Barney Fife and his buddy. Like, and I called the actual FBI agent. I didn't get much more response out of him. So... Needless to say, when they had gone to California, now that that had happened like while we were getting ready for trial. So, and I'm just prefacing, giving that story oh, okay. so you know who these guys were. Right, right. I didn't love them. I don't have a lot of respect. No, I, I would go egg his house right now, except eggs are too expensive. <laughs> right. I mean, how do you blow something like that off? I, I don't know. That's just. I know. It's really super crazy. A lot of those people that should have had his back and been more fair to him, they just were never there for him. Right. The system seriously failed on so many levels. So somehow, for some reason, after those two, Barney Fife and his partner, leave California, leave the federal prison, Taft Prison, to see Jeremy. Yeah. He gets put in the shoe. We have heard it in movies called The Hole. Right. In the federal system, right. they call it The Shoe. And like special housing units. Oh, it sounds so much oh, better. Oh, boy. It sounds yeah, so much sounds better special. as a special housing unit. It is very special. Yeah. It's very, very tiny. And you're isolated. And it's hell. It's awful. You have, like, no privileges. You can't get out. You can't email. You can't I think that's phone. what it should stand for is special hell unit. Yes, it really should. So he gets put in the shoe after the federal agents, because they were asking for Jeremy's cooperation to testify against Swallow. And Jeremy, for some reason, wasn't trusting the feds and wasn't thinking that he would testify for Swallow. Gee, go figure that out. I know. You think he was put in the shoe as a retaliation? I'm not saying that. 
but I am mm, suspicious. But you're not not saying it. <laughs> That's true. So <laughs> he wasn't in town for very long because they had to bring him to Utah to testify. And we will talk about that. It, it is. Oh, man. <laughs> when I go into the swallow case, we'll talk about it. Pretty awesome stuff. Like pretty crazy. Okay. So yeah, during the swallow case, I'll just see how much time this takes. We may cut it. But sure. during the swallow trial, Jeremy was not wanting to testify. I thought it was just because I know Jeremy. He's so kind. He would think, no way do I want anyone else to face this, what I'm going through. This is awful. Right. And remember, I don't know if I explained it, but things were so tough. If you can imagine going from a life where you had all the money that you could imagine. And I know he wasn't right. a billionaire, but he had millions. That's a lot more than I have. And most of us have. A lot have. more than most people. Mm -hmm. And he had the fastest jet at the time, a Citation mm -hmm. 10. And he had helicopters. And he flew airplanes himself. And he flew helicopters himself. Mm -hmm. And he had, I think it was like the fastest helicopter that was made at the time, too. Really fancy helicopter. I would so. Yeah. yeah. He had to say he was comfortable and had everything he needed or wanted. Yes, exactly. I, and to go from. to go from that. From that to, you have prison. like no freedom. You can't just go get in a car, nonetheless get in a helicopter and fly off. You are going to have to sit in this cell. And Jeremy went through, he didn't call it depression. I'm labeling it as depression. Like as he was waiting for sentencing, I would go see him all the time at jail. I've talked about that before. I think he was in his way, and I don't know if it was like he just wanted to die or if he was just so depressed he didn't care, but he stopped eating. And it got to the point where the jail was, they said, we're going to get a court order to feed you. To, IV, like, to do, sure. Yeah, to do an IV because you're not eating. And all he would do was walk in circles in his cell and count yeah. his steps. Uh, Pamela, and, none of that surprises me. You think yeah. about that extreme contrast and how that would impact you emotionally, psychologically is just beyond comprehension. It really is. And I mean, the fact that he's still with us is pretty miraculous i think oh and if you're listening you think oh like i get it i don't want to hear anymore please 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 listen to the end because i want to give this gift to everyone because the process he went through and the growth that he made i think will help all of us it will teach all of us about life and trials that we face and how we yeah. can do hard things you know, they always say, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Yeah. I, like, I can't wait to share some of this that I learned from Jeremy. So, well, family, I agree with that because I think, again, it's not that extreme typically, but everybody deals with this to a certain level. Yeah. And so whatever lesson that he gained or observations you had from seeing him go through this would be incredibly valuable for us to hear. Thank you. I think so, too. So he came up to Utah, and, and I'll go into the details when we talk about the swallow trial, because there is so much in that, too. <laughs> My gosh. But he did not testify against swallow. It was headlines, so if you look it up, you'll see, like, Jeremy pleads the fifth. His attorney advises him not to testify. I'm going to go into more details about that later. It's <laughs> crazy, sure. fascinating. So after Taft, they sent him, I think because he didn't cooperate on the trial of swallow, I think the government was really pissed off. If you think they were mad before, I think they were beyond mad because they sent him to Victorville in California. And Victorville is known 
as the most dangerous prison in the federal prison system. Oh my gosh. The only guys that go to that prison are the guys that are lifers. I get concerned about life sentences for prison for in, inmates because then they have nothing to lose. So nothing to oh, lose. what are you going to do? Give me a second life? You can't do anything to me that you haven't already done. So they're very, very dangerous. So you're telling us that Jeremy was probably the only prisoner in the federal prison in Victorville that used to own his own helicopter. That is my <laughs> guess, yes. I don't think they had a lot of white-collar guys there. Think about his charge. I mean, you got guys that are in federal I, prison for life. Jeremy's facing false statements to a bank, and he's in Victorville, and it was so dangerous. They have stabbings. Like, they were constantly on lockdown for guys getting shanked out in the yard, yep. so they couldn't let him out They could because there was just so much violence. Totally scary. Like, everyone thinks, oh, it's federal prison. Let me tell you what. Yes, there are minimum security prisons, and Jeremy does eventually get yeah. there, but not but always was he yeah, there. It's easy to see why he wouldn't have any interest in cooperating with the feds. It's not like they've got a good track record with him right now. Oh, uh, it, zero right, trust. Years, and he's years just got to be scratching his head like, what in the world's happened to me? Yeah. How did this happen? And of course, he was frustrated. And I was beyond frustrated and angry. He was only in Victorville for a short time. But it, like I say, it was so dangerous that most of your time is spent in lockdown because there were stabbings right. almost daily. Anytime they let the guys out, there was a problem. From Victorville, then they sent him to Safford Prison in Arizona. And that's mm. a minimum security prison. And when he went from Victorville to Safford, he, he rode on the Greyhound, Con Greyhound or something. I think he called it as a joke because he <laughs> on a bus. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, that's miserable because what I know is they have those guys shackled and handcuffed the entire time for hours and hours while they are going. Hey, I get it. People can say they're criminals. They deserve to be punished. I understand Not exactly that. the fun bus, was it? No, there was nothing fun about it. And when he gets to Safford, I remember reading in some emails from him because Safford, in the minimum security federal prisons, they actually allow them to do email. And a lot of our county jails here, instead of snail mail, they have also come into the 21st century and they're allowing emails for the correspondence. So I remember getting some emails from Jeremy about he's ridden on this bus with guys for hours and hours. Just the ride itself would be pretty tense and traumatic. So you would get kind of connected with those people. Like you'd talk, you'd get to know their life. And one of the guys that Jeremy had ridden with, I remember this, he was a convicted sex offender, child porn something, which is, okay, and that is true, the totem pole of prison. And here's how the totem pole works. The white collar guys are at the very top. And then you get like gangsters and all different kinds of crime. And the very, very bottom are pedophiles. Right. So Jeremy gets to Safford. He's like getting oriented and he's in like a dorm that I'm, if I remember correctly, it's like a dorm where you have like a couple hundred guys and you have different dorm rooms, kind of like college, but less fun. (laughs) (laughs) And, And at dinner... Jeremy would just sit and talk to whoever, whoever was around. Sure. And sure. then the captain at the prison over his dorm, the captain calls him in, explains like, Jeremy, you can't do this. And they can't wow. call them gangs because the prison can't support gangs. So what they call them are cars. So everyone has their car that they're supposed to stay in their car. 
Jeremy's car is the very top. It's white-collar crime, and it's mostly white guys that do white-collar crime. So that's his car. Then they're, like, drug cars. Then they're, like, gangster guys, which could be part of the drug cars or, you know. But they have very distinct, and the very, very lowest is the pedophiles. So the captain brings Jeremy in, and it's a woman. And she says, look, Jeremy, the guards are telling me that you are not staying in your car, that you are sitting with, like, a pedophile at dinner. And you can't be doing that. Oh, my gosh. And Jeremy's like, what? How can you tell me who I can sit by to eat dinner? And (laughs) and she's like... Yeah, you don't know. You These are the rules. You're doing it wrong. You can't do this. You th- I know who you are. You're a white collar guy. You think you're so above everything, all the rules, but these are the rules and you're going to live by my rules. And so Jeremy, <laughs> uh, he's so like easygoing, but kind of a smart aleck. And he says like, okay, why don't you give me a book? Because <laughs> if that's the position of the United States government, that that's what we're supposed to do, that I'm supposed to have only association with white people or white-collar criminals, and I'm not supposed to associate with anyone that's black. I'm not supposed to associate with anyone that's a pedophile. If that's the position of the United States government, give me a book and I will read it. And she was so angry. And, of course, she is because he's, you know, they're not going to put that in writing. Well, like to no, say, and, we want you to discriminate. She was probably trying to get him to stay in his lane for his own safety. Yeah. Who knows? But there are unwritten rules and there are unwritten laws everywhere you go, yeah. especially prison. You've got to yeah. behave a certain way. And a lot of the guys were also mad at Jeremy, like, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what the F are you doing with that guy? Like, right. we don't talk to him. You're not supposed to talk to him. And Jeremy's like, look, I don't care. Like, I yeah. rode with him on the bus. I know him. Like, I. Ugh. So Jeremy explains to the captain. He says, look, the government has taken everything from me. They've ruined my reputation. They took all of my money. They took my family away from me. But they are not going to take away my humanity. Mm. You can't do that. And my humanity is that I am going to talk to whoever and sit by whoever. Like, that's who I am. That's all I got left. I'm going to hang on to it. Yeah, that's it. Kind of like the Viktor Frankl thing when he says, they can take everything from you, but you're the master of your mind. You are the captain of your soul. And that was really the position that Jeremy was evolving into. I mean, he hadn't quite gotten there, but he was learning light years ahead of the rest of us about relationships and people. So the captain, she's really, really pissed. And she says, look, I know you've got victims. I know you do. I know you white collar people. You go out and steal (laughs) millions of dollars from all these poor people and take advantage of them. And then you come in here and act like you're all high and mighty and above the rules. And he (laughs) said, oh, really? What victims do I have? I don't have victims. Yeah, name one. There are no victims. And she said, Oh, I know you have a ton. You have millions in restitution, I'm sure. And he said, no, I don't. She said, okay, how much restitution did you have to pay? (laughs) And he said, zero. (laughs) And and she's like, no. And he said, yeah, look it up. Look up my case. Look up my file. You will see I have no restitution. There are no victims. My guess is that she did look it up. 
And he said, I didn't have any victims, but if you find any victims, I'm sure the government would be happy to <laughs> hear about that because they couldn't ever find any. Well, and they <laughs> so, have all of his cash, so they'll be have to be the one to write the check. Right. So what Jeremy was learning as he was talking to these guys was there were a lot of guys that through their years of drug use and harming people that they had isolated the people that were really important in their lives or should have been very important in their lives. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a lot of them would get nothing for mail. They would get no letters, no emails. They would get no money put on their account to buy commissary. No one cared about a lot of these men that were in there. Sure. And Jeremy is a lovable guy. And all of us that had gotten to know him in trial, we were keeping in touch Jeremy had his family, he had a great support system from them. His wife was absolutely standing by his side, his kids, and all the his workers. Remember how they stuck together through trial? That didn't change. The, those relationships, the, the people that loved Jeremy still loved Jeremy. Of course. So he had so much support. When Christmas came around and people were writing him and saying, Hey, Jeremy, like, what can we do to help you? Like, we want to do something for you for Christmas. And... He's like, you know what? I have money on my account. Like, I don't know what the limit was if they would only let him have like $100 a month on their account or something like that. Like it was a limited amount you could even have on commissary. And Jeremy was already at his limit. And he said, even if you put money on my account, I can't spend it. It's no good to me. And then he's true to form for Jeremy. He said, I don't need anything, but there are other guys here that have no family that cares about them no friends, no letters. So you know what? If you could put some money on their account so they could buy like a candy bar or a pop or something, that would be really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Representing your loyal listeners today, as I do. Yeah. We've really gotten a pretty accurate picture about the kind of unique and remarkable guy that Jeremy is. And in this situation, again, his compassion for people who are much more guilty than he is, Mm -hmm. is finding the humanity and his desire to keep those freedoms of interacting with people even supersedes his common sense for being safe and keeping his car in his own lane, for example. But it certainly lines up with the way you've described him in the past. And it's uh, very impressive. He is really an impressive guy. So, What happened that I thought was pretty miraculous was there were people that sent money and put money on these guys' accounts that had never had money on it before. I mean, that's, that's impressive. The miraculous part is those guys decided, hey, you know what? This is such a cool thing that I would like to buy something for someone else. And so these guys like all got this idea, Jeremy and some of these guys, that they would take that money And the food there really sucked. I've told people many times the food in prison sucks. Like they'll have like a bologna sandwich or a hot dog many, many days over and over. Like it's not great food. Mm. So just to have enough money to buy commissary, like to buy a frozen burrito in commissary was a big deal for some of these guys. Because no, remember some of these guys had no money on their commissary and they've been in there for a long time. So they haven't had anything other than what's like the food that they're given, which is pretty sucky. Here's what they decided to do a Christmas dinner for everyone. The Hmm. only thing they had to work with were frozen burritos that they could buy in commissary. (laughs) So they did. Merry Christmas. 
they yeah, Merry Christmas, all all you Mexican, all the guys in the Mexican car, in the Hispanic car. Merry Christmas. Right. <laughs> so right. so they they took all these burritos and they, oh my gosh, they bought burritos. Hey hey, Pamela, listen, I've never met a burrito I didn't like. So right. I, I get exactly. it. That is. A There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. Nope. So. They they got all these burritos, and I mean like a couple hundred burritos, and pop. They had been buying pop, soda pop, and candy. So that every guy for Christmas dinner could have a burrito, a soda, and a candy bar. <laughs> and they set it up like this. So they had hot water for guys to make coffee and stuff. Right. And so they took a garbage bag. They'd put all the burritos out, like on a table, and then they'd take... A garbage bag and fill that with the hot water for coffee. I mean, it was like burning <laughs> hot. And then they put that plastic bag over the top of the burritos, and then they put a towel over the plastic bag so it would hold that heat in. And in like thirty oh minutes, God. it cooked those burritos. <laughs> and then for the soda, they took they got like garbage cans and a bucket like buckets, garbage cans, and they put soda cans in there and they filled those with ice because they had access to ice yeah and then they had a candy bar here's what was the most amazing part of this and i i can't help but cry because it like jeremy was crossing all those lines of boundaries of color race Mm -hmm. crime and everything at his own peril yes the other guys weren't doing it just because jeremy did no one did and part of that to do that meant you don't go eat with the people that are doing that. You don't eat near them. You don't talk to them. You ignore them. You treat right. them like crap. Well, to do this dinner meant Jeremy was inviting everyone from every car to come and eat. And the way Jeremy describes it is, it was like that for that one day, everyone got out of their gang, their car. Got out of their cars. Got out yeah. of their cars for that one day kind of all set their weapons down to eat together yeah Yeah. and there were guys there were guys that had never gotten anything for christmas from anyone certainly not in prison and i know there was at least one guy that came up to jeremy with tears in his eyes and told jeremy how special this was to him like i've never gotten anything thank you for this christmas and there were only two guys that jeremy could see in the dorm out of like a couple hundred over a couple hundred that would not come and eat the food they wouldn't get out of their car cross, <laughs> they wouldn't cross yeah. the lines but like 200 guys did and that's amazing i it... like to me i remember reading about it in the email and, and i was like what who cares about a burrito to us who cares about a burrito to them it was setting their weapons down and some caring about other people he literally created joy and hope in a place where none existed. Yeah. And he did it by... With hot water and frozen burritos. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> it reminds me of the story from World War II where they, in the transport for they they literally set the weapons down and for Christmas they... They came and they embraced and they were brothers for a and moment. They were, and they and, actually and they sang Silent Night family. together. Yes. They sang, sang together and there was hope. Yes. There was a sense of something beautiful 
in a very, very ugly place. Exactly. And Jared was single-handedly responsible. Yeah. And I, I had the same exact thought of it. So here's yeah. what happened yeah. because of that. <laughs> I say because of that. Because, of course, they made food. They made the normal dinner for all the guys that day. And, like, no yeah. one was showing up for dinner except a couple guys from that dorm. <laughs> So the captain they got a better offer. Yeah, they had a better <laughs> offer for sure. The captain that I talked to you about that uh, did not care for Jeremy yes. called him in and said, "You broke the rules. You fed all these guys, and it wasn't just that he fed them. Here was the rule that he broke. They said you had people put money on other guys' accounts that they're not family mm-hmm. to, they're not friends with." And because you did that, we are worried that you're buying drugs from them. And this is what's happening. And Jeremy said, you know what? You're right. I'm guilty. I did that. And then they said, well, we are worried. There's why we're worried, because we think you're buying drugs from them. And Jeremy said, well, then why don't you just drug test me? Go ahead and check me. I <laughs> like. You'll find that I'm not using drugs. I didn't buy any drugs. I don't do that. And they yeah. didn't want to do that because... Because that would be too easy, I guess. So what she decided she would do, it, she got mad at him and threw him in the shoe. Not just for a few a days. special hell unit. Yes. Special hell unit. Not just for a few days. He was in the shoe for two months. Two freaking months for doing... And, and when she months. when she was saying how mad... And here's... <laughs> I think he didn't help the situation because she was saying how awful it was and what he did. And he said, look, I just wanted to do Christmas for these guys. They don't have it. A lot of people don't have anyone to even call them on Christmas, write to them. They don't have anyone that cares. And I just wanted to do something. And she was like, you can't do that. You can't... You don't understand. You broke the rules. And he said, why are you being such a Grinch? And that's when she decided oh, no. to Oh no. That's Two when months. she decided to put him in the shoe to prove that she's not the Grinch. Ooh. It, <laughs> I don't think that's a good way to prove it. <laughs> so, uh, I think it just had the opposite effect. <laughs> right. And I don't oh, I'm not quite sure like if the guards in the that were over the shoe, if they started to think Jeremy was an okay guy and so they let him out earlier than she thought or I don't know exactly what happened, but he was let out for like a couple weeks or three weeks. And then she realized that he was out of the shoe and she ordered him put back in again. That doesn't sound Grinchy to me now, does it? No, no. See, she proved like I'm not the Grinch. No, I am way nicer than that. But here's what's amazing about that whole process. I told you how depressed he was. And everything else. And I know I shared some of these letters a long time ago. I remember. I'm going to do them again because now that you have the context. That's it. Now this will be even more powerful. It will be more powerful. Now that you know like what Jeremy was really going through. It's almost Job-like. It's like Uh one thing after the other and it just keeps compounding. It's like how much can one man endure? Yeah. And then these letters. Yes. In the first letter I'm going to read, remember when Jeremy was going to meet with attorney number three and we had learned that they hadn't disclosed that there was a conflict of interest that she represented the big witness that we wanted to. And I said, Jeremy, you've got to record this. So while Jeremy's in prison, he wasn't the only one that was distressed by this. I was incredibly distressed and I was constantly trying to figure out how we can write this wrong. Right. I'd sent Jeremy a letter saying... Hey, 
I know you must have recorded that conversation with her, with that attorney, because what she said was the magistrate judge had told her not to disclose to Jeremy that about the conflict. And if that had come out in court, I can't imagine this case wouldn't have been tossed out. And so I started thinking to myself, oh my gosh, is Jeremy protecting her? Like, is he in prison because he's protecting attorney number three? If he is, like, I was so distressed. And so I had sent him an email and I'm like, Jeremy, I think you really did record it. And you're in prison right now because you don't want her to lose her bar license. So it's either her bar license or you going to prison. And please, I'm begging you, please stop protecting her. So I had just sent that letter to Jeremy. And this was after he'd been in prison now for like two and a half years. I sent that email to him. And this is his response. Now, he's already gone through so much evolution. And this is Jeremy's response. He says, ha ha. You are ever the detective, exclamation point. I bet it's hard for you to sleep sometimes with that active mind of yours working overtime, trying to figure out everyone's little schemes and such. I love it, exclamation point. The truth about number three is this. I was going to record it, but then as I got thinking about it, walking in, I decided not to because I didn't want to betray my own attorneys. I figured I was just going to let the cards fall where they may. There was a time I regretted that decision, but as I sit here, I realize it was the right thing to do. This will be really hard for you to understand, but I will do my best to explain it. If I could go back in time and stop the government from wrecking my business, taking all my stuff and money, destroying my reputation, and taking my freedom, I would not do it if I had also to give back everything I have learned from the experience. I really mean that. Wow. What I have learned from it all is worth more to me than all the gold, all the gold and diamonds in the world. In life, we learn and grow from parallels. I already knew what it's like to have all the money I could ever need. I know what it's like to have everyone look up to you and admire you and think you are a kind and generous person. And then he puts in like parentheses, I was even awarded humanitarian of the year. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to help other people when they are down. And I know what it's like to have the ultimate freedom to go anywhere you want, anytime you want, and explore all the beauty of the earth from the same point of view as the birds, via helicopter, of course. But before all this happened, I had no idea what the other side of the parallel was like. Now I do. I know what it's like to have no money and have to depend on others for everything you have. I know what it's like to have a bad reputation and have most people think you're a criminal who hurts others for my own gain. And I know what it's like to have no freedom where your every moment is controlled and monitored. And now, as I sit here and write this, I can honestly tell you that I'm as happy and content as I have ever been in my whole life. What I have gained from all this is the knowledge that it's totally up to me how I feel. It really has nothing to do with your circumstances or situation. I feel like I can take anything that life throws at me now and still be happy and content. What could be more valuable than that? There is a great deal more and I could go on forever about it, but that is the basic thing I've gotten from it all. 
I honestly have nothing but love in my heart for number three, the judge, the magistrate judge, and all of the prosecutors. In some ways, I feel like I owe them a great debt of gratitude. Wow. I know it was not their intent. I know. I know. I'm like, please, Jeremy, help me get there. <laughs> he says, yeah, really. Teach us all. <laughs> yes. He said, I know it was not their intent to make my life better, but they honestly have. Now, this is a guy that's in prison writing this. Yeah. He says, nobody understands this, but I really wish everyone could. My life before was mostly lived in fear. Fear of losing all my money, fear of the government, fear of competitors, my reputation, freedom. The list goes on and on. I no longer live my life in fear, or at least I try not to. I am open to whatever adventures life has for me without any expectation as to what exactly that should be. This is a wonderful way to live, to not hold anger, grudges, and expectations of people in your heart. Opens it up and makes room for all kinds of things that you never knew were possible. All aspects of life and people become a grand adventure and you are never sad or depressed. This is really not a good explanation, but it's the best I can think of at the moment. When I get out, you'll see for yourself that I am a better and happier person than I ever was. Also, don't forget that without all this, we would never know each other. It was necessary to bring us together since we promised to help each other out before we were born. He used to say that when I was fighting so hard for him. Wow. He said, you were there for me in my darkest hour. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do to help you out yet, but there will be something I'm sure of it. Love, Jeremy. Well, I know. It's the lady that sucks the joy and sunshine out of our lives with her podcast. Jeremy's just given us all some hope. Hasn't he, though? Isn't that like such <laughs> a beautiful a thing? It is a remarkable, remarkable statement. And it is incredibly hopeful. Yeah. And I, I tease you about the podcast, but it's your sense of justice that led you to work so hard to defend him and to help him, which led you to do the podcast. I tease you about it. It's a beautiful thing because it's done out of... Uh, loyalty and and your spirit of justice and wanting to shed some light on these things that should not have happened the way they did. Yeah. And yet Jeremy provides that message of hope and joy. And um, he's absolutely right. And it's a tough lesson to learn. And I hope we all don't have to go through it the way he did to, to figure that out. I so want to share the gift that he gave to me with all of you that Man, I doubt that we have the trials that are as public. I don't mean to discount anyone's trial that you're going through. Exactly. But I want exactly. want everyone to know you can find joy. Even if you're in a dark place, you will find joy again. You can do it. What I know is it really is almost like the story of Job from the Bible where he loses everything yeah. and still doesn't forsake God. Yeah, prison is rough. It's really hard. I don't want anyone to think for a minute that it wasn't. But to see, no matter where we are, that we can find joy, that we can use those things. Like, it, it reminds me, so. like, when I went through my assault, and, and there was this, the depression I had the first few months after the assault, like, four months, I think it was probably four or five months in, 
And I wasn't seeing one counselor, I seen two, because I thought if one's good, two are better. And I was begging them, please get me through this depression. I hate this place and I don't want to live here. And I, yeah. I don't think they yeah. meant to not help me. I think they just didn't know how. They didn't have the exact steps to get me through. And for me, it was like the Tony Robbins stuff and the Wayne Dyer and all, all that that I was listening to and the exercise I was doing to move my body to take action. Because if you don't like the way you feel, the fastest way to change it is move your body. And But for me, it was right. the big shift happened when I changed my question from like, oh my gosh, am I going to be crazy forever and depressed forever from having gone through this sex assault to change, flip the question to where I asked, is there any way that I could be better from this situation? Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. What a completely different angle. Yeah. yeah. And it changed my whole trajectory. Exactly. It, that's what makes his message so magnificent. It is so incredibly powerful and hopeful yeah. for all of us. I was hoping it would be, and I was so excited to share that. Like, I know these are hard stories to, to hear about the injustice and to know that this happens in our country. And there are more injustices yeah. that happen to other people. I'm just focusing on this one. And I know we all have injustices in our life, but I promise you can... Not just survive, you can thrive. You can be stronger and better for having gone through it. I agree. I think someday, somehow, it'll all work out. It's an incredible message of hope and joy. Thank you. I hope it is. Thank you for sharing it today, Pamela. That was amazing. It really does bring me joy to share it. And there is so much more coming. There, It's exciting and crazy <laughs> and fun. I know this is way long, well, but... But it is, and, and now we're ready for it. So bring it on. We're not afraid of your podcast anymore. <laughs> okay. We're ready to okay, go. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm going to help you guys develop emotional muscles along with me and Jeremy. So we'll do it. So bring it. Thank you for listening to Pamela Private Eye.